0: These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the lord thanks john very much indeed
1: and a very good morning to you if you have that open do uh, if you have a bible do have that open if not it will be on the screen and as we begin let's pray together heavenly father we praise you that you are a speaking god and in churches around the world today you will speak to your people so we pray please speak to us here please give us hearts to obey And hearts uh, that that long to keep your word as you speak it to us amen well we're beginning a new series this morning in Daniel we'll spend about six weeks and then we'll pause and uh, then if the Lord doesn't return we'll get into the complicated stuff after that but for those of you who know Daniel you'll know that uh, the book focuses on the lives of four Israelites taken into captivity in Babylon And the aim of this book is to help those living in a foreign and hostile land to work out how to live faithfully to God. And I guess as our society moves further and further away from our Christian heritage, our society too seems increasingly like a foreign land. Just a couple of decades ago, I guess many people would have agreed that the Bible provides a foundation for a society to function well. Even those who would never darken the door of a church would say the Bible has something to say to us about morality. But just last year, a Crown lawyer claimed in a prosecution case that quoting parts of the King James Bible should be, and I quote, considered to be abusive and is a criminal matter. How far our society has come. In a few short years and the question for us is the question for these Babylonian exiles how will we live faithfully to our God in the midst of a hostile land well the chief lesson of the book of Daniel is to remember that even in a foreign land even in an increasingly hostile society our God the creator of heaven and earth the risen Lord Jesus reigns he is on his throne And our first point this morning, in some ways, could be a summary of the whole book of Daniel. In a hostile land, take heart, because the Lord reigns. In a hostile land, take heart, because the Lord reigns. And I want us just to see how hostile a land Babylon is. Look down at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The year is 605 bc and babylon is the undisputed superpower of the day nebuchadnezzar's immense army is fresh from deceiting the assyrians and the egyptians and this massive army lays siege to tiny jerusalem it's the first of three attacks on the city and over the next 20 years the city will be destroyed the temple desecrated, and almost everyone will be carried into exile. It's horrendous. You can read about it in 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25. But you see, this is much more than a geopolitical power struggle. This is set up as a battle of the gods. Look down again at verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into his, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And the message, the symbolism to Israel couldn't be more clear. Your God is weak. Your God has lost. Your God can't protect you. And now look, the holy things of your God are at the feet of idols in a Babylonian temple. How pathetic. And friends, isn't that the message? We receive from our society your God is irrelevant you don't believe in those fairy tales in this day and age in this age of science how could you be so stupid God looks powerless irrelevant but this passage tells us even in a hostile land God reigns but you see the hostility gets even worse, particularly for some of the young men. The Babylonians had a policy of taking promising young future leaders and taking them to Babylon and making them into loyal Babylonians. And the aim would be then that they would go back and rule over their former people. So we see in verses 3 and 4 that these young men, probably teenagers, the age of some of the guys lurking at the back of this hall, dragged off into, uh, into a foreign city and uh, brainwashed. And you see the kind of indoctrination they receive. Verse 5, they learn a new language. They learn the literature of the Babylonians, not learning Shakespeare and things, more reading Babylonian religious texts, immersing themselves in the the morality or, or rather the Babylonian immorality of the day. They're given a stipend from the government, provision from the king's table. And then after three years, when they graduate from Babylon University, They're to serve the king, having become loyal Babylonians. But perhaps the most humiliating and disorientating thing comes in verse 7. We see these young men, Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah, but they're to be given new names. It's as if their old identity is to be wiped out. These guys all have impeccably Jewish names. Daniel Daniel means God is judge. It's a great thing to remember. God is going to judge his people. But his name is changed to Belteshazzar. O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. His name is almost a prayer to a foreign god. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, becomes Shadrach at the command of the moon god, Aku. It would be like taking a child from here called Joshua. The Lord saves and renaming them abdul servant of allah striking it's a new identity well i wonder do we see some of the parallels to our own society as we meet in here it's clear that god reigns we we praise him for it as we meet in home groups we know that he works in our lives but tomorrow go out into the world go out amongst our friends this afternoon Go to our offices and our schools, and to suggest that God rules the world, to suggest that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, seems both arrogant and naive. The Christian morals we teach our children are ridiculed in our schools, mocked in the media as almost being immoral. Or as we grieve at the way our society becomes more hostile to the gospel, It's helpful to remember how much worse it has been in the history of the people of God. It's much worse for Daniel and his friends. It was much worse for the first Christians under Roman rule. And yet they're able to live for God. They're able to remain faithful. Well, why is that? Because they know, even in a hostile land, God reigns. Look down at verse 2. And do we see why Israel is defeated? We expect to read because Nebuchadnezzar came with his great army and his better tactics. But in fact, we read the Lord. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, ruling over the greatest empire on the earth, can do nothing but by God's, the true God's will and permission not a striking thought God reigns even amongst those who are hostile to him as some of you go home to family members who mock you for being here this morning God reigns as we go to work tomorrow and the boss tries to force us to do something we know to be wrong God reigns as our friends deride us for not joining in their sin as God seems so powerless so far away this teaches in fact he reigns friends perhaps that's most clearly seen 2000 years ago when his beloved son in a moment in which god looked utterly powerless and weak as his beloved son is arrested as he's beaten tried killed by sinful men and yet even over that god reigns and that is the way he saves the world through bearing through the lord jesus bearing the weight of the sins of the world on his back on the cross god reigns over a foreign land so take heart take heart but secondly in a hostile land take a public stand in a hostile land take a public stand we see in verse 8 daniel doing just that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way and here we see Daniel being courageous but we need to remember that Daniel himself is not the hero of this story very clearly God is the hero Daniel is a model to us of someone who understands that God reigns and so is faithful he's a model for us he's not somebody out there we could never emulate He's the faithful believer. Well, we see he resolves not to sacrifice his godliness. He determines in the midst of this hostile land to remain faithful to God. And this act of resolution or determination is so important, isn't it? It doesn't just happen. If we just think everything will be okay, we'll be pushed along with the flow of society. We need to resolve and we see this is a public thing. It's not that he, desi- he, he resolves in his head and he thinks, I'll, I'll, I'll be godly. No, what he resolves to do works out into action, into at least semi-public action. It's not a private thing. wonder if you can sense his fear. You can imagine the adrenaline beating as he goes to that chief steward. He's going against his peers. He's going against the might of Babylon. If you look in verse 10, that chief official, one of Nebuchadnezzar's loyal lieutenants, is petrified of Nebuchadnezzar. If he doesn't do his job well, his head will be cut off. And there we have Daniel, a teenage captive, a foreigner. If anyone's disposable, it's him. And yet he knows he must stand. So by God's grace, he does but it's not really clear why he stands here why does he make a fuss here some people say he's uh, worried because uh, he's in danger of breaking the jewish dietary laws that this this uh, meat is not kosher meat that could be the case but we see later in chapter 10 he does eat meat and wine i don't think it's a kosher thing it could be that the meat is sacrificed to idols and he's nervous about eating something that's been offered to idols But quite likely, the vegetables too were sacrificed to idols. Perhaps it's that uh, he doesn't want to be seen eating from the king's table. It's often said, isn't it, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And if someone is willing to give you patronage and invite you to their fancy club, they probably want something from you, don't they? There's something in that. But quite possibly, it's just in the nature of all this assimilation, in everything trying to squeeze him into becoming a loyal babylonian daniel knows somewhere he needs to stand up and so he takes his stand here and that's a helpful reminder to us i think there are some things in the christian life that are clearly red lines that if we do something or say something we do it at the cost of disowning our master we cannot cross that red line without sinning and yet there are other red lines that uh, there's a bit of flexibility for some we'll draw a line here others it will be a bit further on and the danger is we look at one another and we say well he's compromised he's he's just gone too far or those who've taken a stand look at others and say uh, they're hotheads they they have sorry look at some and say they've gone too far they've compromised or we look at others and say they're hotheads they could have just gone a bit further and i guess at a time like this we need to be very careful we don't do that that uh, we respect where others have taken a stand. Now, of course, that doesn't mean any stand is okay. But the crucial thing is somewhere we take a stand. I went skiing the other day. Took our kids for the first time skiing, and we were pottering on the beginner slope. And it's interesting to look up and see these high hills up there. And I thought of those people who go skiing with pickaxes, off-piste, and they have an ice axe so they can get up, and to make sure they don't slide off the cliff imagine you're on a cliff and your feet give way and you begin to slide down it doesn't matter whether you get the ice axe in up here or here or here so long as you get it in before you plunge off that cliff to your death friends it doesn't in some ways matter where we choose to stand so long as we make a stand we resolve to remain loyal to our God I guess in every job in every social situation or society in a social society, there will be the equivalent of the king's table. There'll be places where we need to take our stand. The world will be saying, don't bother, just come with us, but we need to stand. And like Daniel, we need to resolve in advance to know where we'll stand. I guess there's a sense that particularly for some of the younger folk, this is crucial. I don't think it's any coincidence that these guys are teenagers. Daniel's a teenager when he makes his resolution. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and theologian in uh, America in the 18th century, used greatly by God. And when he was a teenager, he made a series of resolutions. He determined that by God's grace, he would live in a certain way. Let me read a couple of them to you. He wrote, Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, except what tends to the glory of God later on he wrote I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again resolved that I will live as I think I shall wish I had done if I'd lived to an old age and Jonathan Edwards wrote on a whole range of topics 70 resolutions in the end not by his own strength very clearly by the grace of God well I wonder if that's something some of us should read and resolve I hope whether we're young or old Each of us will resolve I will live for Jesus whatever it costs I will put Jesus first but we do need to go further in our particular workplace our particular friendship group with our particular temptations given our own character and weaknesses where will we stand as we think about our use of money doesn't matter whether you're going to give 10% 20% 30% will we resolve to use some of our income for the kingdom of God. So we think about time. Will we resolve to make sure we have time to keep meeting with the people of God, to keep serving his church? In our workplaces, what are the issues we need to think through? What are the sharp practices we need to resolve to avoid? If we're a teacher, what are the things we will not teach? Let's know in advance, so when we're asked to, we can say no. If you're in the medical world, What about those things at the beginning and the end of life? Where are the lines? Perhaps most chiefly, are we resolved to be a public Christian? To make it known publicly that our number one loyalty is to Jesus. I had a friend who served on the vestry of her church. And for several years, she sat in a desk. She worked at a desk opposite another Christian. And for those years, neither of them knew that the other was a Christian. How sad is that? that they couldn't pray together for their office, that they couldn't uh, work together to reach their colleagues for Christ. I hope that we'll resolve, if there are people or colleagues who don't know we're a Christian, we'll resolve to make it known publicly that Jesus is our Lord. We're a follower of Jesus. If that's you, will you go home this afternoon and work out, how will you say to a colleague tomorrow, I was at church yesterday because I'm a Christian. Let's resolve to be taking a public stand. I'm struck that there are many youths mentioned in these first verses. Many were carted off into Babylon, and yet only four remain. We only hear of four here. I take it the others were overwhelmed. They were promised fame and riches and power at Nebuchadnezzar's table. And so they bowed down to the gods of Babylon was a highlight last week wasn't it in our service to see all those young people testifying to the way Neil Dunbar had been a a blessing to them in his life and his ministry was a a great a great wonderful testimony to God's grace but somebody told me as they were looking through their albums of youth group this week that although there are many who are still here faithfully going for Jesus there were others who used to be involved who now are nowhere spiritually Friends, it's desperately important that we resolve in this hostile land to take a stand. And if we've taken our stand and we've fallen down, there's grace again. There's forgiveness at the foot of the cross to resolve again, to stand firm for Jesus. Well, in a hostile land, take a public stand. And then third and finally, briefly, in a hostile land... The Lord takes care of the people who put him first. In a hostile land, the Lord takes care of those who put him first. In a sense, this is the other side of God reigning. God doesn't just reign generally. He reigns for his glory and for the good of his people. He takes care of his people. He takes care of us. Look at uh, how Daniel goes to the chief official. He goes, just notice he goes politely, politely. He's not going full of bombast. He goes and and politely asks for permission not to defile himself. And then see what God does, verse 9. God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Now, the official himself says no, but when Daniel goes to the guard who's immediately over him, the, the official doesn't object. And so the guard agrees to this trial. Take away the best food for 10 days. Give us a few carrots and some water and see what happens. Now, I'm deeply sorry to vegetarians here. This is clearly not supposed to be seen as a model diet. Clearly, the expectation is to take away their meat and their wine, and they're going to become poor and emancipated on this diet of vegetables. Sorry, that's not the good news some of you wanted to hear this morning. But clearly, it's supposed to be a problem. And yet, look at the end of the trial, the end of, fif- uh, end of verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, these young men, subsisting on vegetables, look healthier. And better nourished than any of the young men who ate the luxury food of the king. And so they're allowed not to eat from the king's table. Well, in a sense, it's a miracle, isn't it? They survive on veg- vegetarian food and they thrive. And I'm, getting, I'm digging, and digging, aren't I? But do we see that, that in the context, God is working. He's not a far-off God. In the moment, he's working. He's giving. He's, he's blessing his people. And then we see what else God does. Do you see in verse 17, to these four young men, God gives knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand vision and visions and dreams of all kinds. So much so that when they graduate, at the end of the three years, as they're brought in before King Nebuchadnezzar, they're found, verse 20, to be ten times better than all the others in Babylon. God blesses those who put him first. And clearly, they worked hard, but they didn't work 10 times harder. This is God's supernatural working, and he's blessing them individually, and he's guiding his people into the place he wants them to build his kingdom. Struck by a number of people who said to me, uh, not here actually, but uh, in the past, uh, exam season's coming, so I won't be at Bible study for a few weeks, I won't be, you won't see me so much at church because I've got to concentrate on my exams. Or parents who've said, well, I've been told that if my child doesn't take part in the school sports team on Sunday morning, then they'll just not fit in. And so I'm sorry, I won't see you so much on Sundays. And humanly speaking, that's very logical, isn't it? If you want to do well in exams, you need to be in the books. And so why not cram every moment you possibly can into study? And yet, Humanly, logically, that might be the case. And yet, God blesses those who put Him first. And when you think about it, who is it who controls whether we wake up in the morning of the exam with a headache or a clear mind? Who controls what questions will come up? Surely, it's the Lord who reigns. I've just begun a book on Eric Little. You probably know Eric Little from Chariots of Fire a man who was the fastest 100-meter runner in the 1920s. And he was a Christian. He wouldn't run on a Sunday. And actually, interestingly, he's, he's a good example, isn't he? I think we would look at him and say, well, why not run on a Sunday? That's not our red line today, by and large. But for him, that was the red line. And when he refused to run in the 100-meter 100, the 100 Olympics race in 1924, because it was on a Sunday, there was a huge stink. There was great pressure on him from the public from even the royal family. I imagine Christians would have gone to him and said, Eric, just swallow your conscience for a moment. Think what influence you'll have for the kingdom if you win that medal as you go on your speaking tours and speak of Jesus. Eric refused. And instead, he ran in the 400 meters, a race he'd only run a handful of times before, technically totally different to the 100 meters, and yet he won it. Because God honors those who honor him. God blesses those who put him first. Now, of course, this is not a prosperity gospel. There's no promise that this will happen to us in this life. But God is no man's debtor. God will reward those who put him first. It might be in heaven, but he will reward us. We heard a few moments ago the highlights of those folk who'd been in Jerusalem. I think my highlight in Jerusalem was spending time with Canadians. If you know anything about the Anglican Church in Canada, you'll know that many of them paid a great price when they decided that they had to leave their denomination. And they were absolutely candid about some of the hard times they went through. They didn't sugarcoat it. But to a man or woman, they were absolutely clear that they did the right thing. Of course, there were some individual things they could have done better, but the general direction, they were certain they did what they felt God was calling them to do. And they said they would do it again. Because as they took that step, they knew God blessing them. They saw new Christians come into their churches. They saw new churches being planted. They saw God giving growth. And I take it as we go forward from here, we will know God's blessing. It will be costly. It will cost us in time. That transition team has lost their who knows how many evenings for the next three months. It will be costly in terms of money. It will be costly in terms of relationships and pain, but we trust that God cares for those who seek to put him first, and so we can expect to see his kingdom grow in this place. We're in a hostile land. God reigns. And you see the delicious irony of this chapter. It begins with humiliation, as God's people are defeated. And then we see the Babylonians desperately trying to get Babylon into the heart of these three faithful men. But instead, God gets three, four faithful men into the heart of Babylon. And from there, we see God working out his purposes over the next two decades. Our God reigns, even over a hostile land. So take a stand for Jesus, knowing that Jesus will care for his faithful people. Let's pray together.